Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober myself. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. Well, I think I've mostly recovered from COVID. Uh, I think I have a couple like very minor underlying symptoms that maybe might persist, um, like kind of like a scratchiness in the very back of my my sinuses, and my sense of smell hasn't fully returned, which I work in recycling and it fucking stinks there, so that doesn't bother me too much. Um, my sense of taste is starting to come back, and so therefore my appetite's coming back, my energy levels are up, so I feel good, I feel great, and of course that has had a huge positive effect on my mental health. Um, while I haven't been struggling anything like I have in the past, uh, it, it was kind of a struggle, you know, just being isolated and feeling very, very much alone and not really being able to do anything about it because of a complete lack of energy, a lack of like mental energy. So, you know, just kind of just being trapped in my own head for a little while. But I pulled through and uh, I think I'm ready to start making some real positive changes about myself. I have a game plan to start exercising again. I try to rein in my my current returning uh, social media addiction. Uh, I started reading. I actually have been reading a book, which I've struggled with probably for the last shit seven years to really read and get back into reading. So we'll see if this even sticks. I've had a couple spurts, but uh, I'm 50 pages into a book and I'm excited for that. It's a fiction book, nothing crazy. You know, it's subject matter I've dealt with. It's a Clive Barker book. But I'm hoping that being able to focus my attention on that uh, as a way of sort of winding down at the end of the day is a is a good positive step in the right direction towards reading other books that might have more benefit. Not saying that reading fiction or doing things that are just for pure enjoyment isn't of benefit. But, you know, I've been kind of stalling my growth. And there's some books I want to read that I want to share with the podcast. And there's some information that I want to learn that I think would benefit uh, my sobriety. So, you know, moving forward on some stuff. Now, that being said, I did have last week, I had a, uh, a friend, if I can call him that, reach out. And uh, we were supposed to be working on, you know, possibly getting getting him sober. And, you know, very, very bullet point quick back history on this individual. Me and him uh, used to be friends while we were drinking. We had a falling out. Uh, He's a very toxic person. And even in my drinking, it was a little too much. Uh, He said some pretty uh, fucking awful things to me, accused me of trying to sleep with who who is basically my niece, who was 20 20 at the time, uh, which just wasn't fucking the case, and accused me and my friends of a lot of other things. Uh, Systematically, everybody that we know has had to cut them, cut him out. I, I did the same. I blocked him all, all of my social media. When I got into sobriety, I reached out to his sister, who I also had had to block because she was a part of kind of the, the toxic stuff. She was saying some similar things. And me and her had had a toxic, you know, our own little toxic history. Uh, we'd slept together and had like kind of off and on again weirdness. Uh, but anyways, what... If I reached out to her, it saw that she wasn't healed at all, was just as the same person. She was saying just f- even worse shit to me, so I blocked her again. That was that. And then um, I locked myself out of my Facebook somehow because, you know, I have talent for doing shit like that. And then I created a new one. And through creating a new one, uh, this friend was able to reach out to me. And at first, he kind of started out with the same kind of language. 
And I told him that that wasn't, I absolutely won't tolerate that. Um, I, I told him I wanted to just know where he was. Like, where, where was he in life? Is he working on any of that stuff? Is he doing anything for himself? Is he healing and growing? Is he trying? Like, if he's in the same spot, then I, I can't be around that. And, you know, the whole the whole conversation seemed to go okay. He, you know, he, he got a job. He changed careers. He, he taught himself how to code because there's a lot of online programs for that. And I was pretty excited to hear that. I was very proud of him. I uh, told him, you know, he said he's still struggling with alcohol, but he's trying to get you know, little baby steps moving forward. He sounded healthier. He sounded a lot better. So we started talking a little bit. We were going to try to meet up and he told me some story about, well, he told me that he'd lost someone that he knew. Uh, he lost a person to suicide. And I, I was, I offered to be there for him. We talked a little bit. We had talked previously about his drinking because he had brought up that he was struggling. He said, I, you know, that he couldn't make it past three weeks and he didn't know how to quit. I knew he's not a, he's not a person I think that would really resonate with AA. Uh, maybe not at first, very sensitive guy. And I think a lot of the stuff in AA, he would take very personally. So I offered, I offered AA, but I also offered smart recovery, life ring. Uh, there's a harm reduction kind of recovery that just focuses on trauma, you know, reduction focuses on trauma recovery, and then slowly works on the potential for abstinence. If that's even necessary, you know, there's, there's stuff out there and send him all the information. You know, I told him, I didn't know much about smart recovery, but if you ever wanted to go to a meeting, I'd be happy to go with him. And that was it. He didn't really say much. And then I just out of the blue, fucking we end up in this back and forth where, you know, he starts saying the same kind of language about how it was all my fault. And it's all our friend's fault for where he's at. And we we've done worse. And, you know, just we think we're so much better than him and we're holding him back. And which I just don't understand. Like, I, it was so confusing to me. It's like we, none of us have talked to you in over a year. Some of us longer. How are we holding you back, bud? Like how could we possibly be holding you back if we're not having any communication with you, man? But yeah, I could recognize what was happening. And I was doing my best to kind of maintain and just be like, you know, you need to work on yourself. You need to get you need to consider getting sober. I don't want to have this conversation with you if you're like this. Uh, this is old behavior. This isn't something I'm I'm comfortable tolerating. If you're going to talk to me like this, you know, he started he started being derogatory to me, started putting me down. And then he started uh, doing some damage. You know, he started saying some stuff that was just damaging. And I finally told him, no, fuck that. I'm not going to allow you to talk to me this way. If this is how you're going to be, then that's it. And I cut him back out. I can put the block on him. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I know that in recovery, it's really, especially early recovery, it's really difficult to, it was really difficult for me to start coming to terms with the fact that it's okay to cut people out, that at times it's necessary even if the cut's not permanent, even if it's somebody that you love and care about and you, and you just want nothing more than to just have them in your life, you know, sometimes you just have to, you just have to make that cut. And in early sobriety, what I had the biggest struggle with was feeling like I was abandoning them. Like I was leaving people out to dry, even if I was doing it, for, especially if I was doing it for myself, you know, sometimes I was, you know, really aware of the fact that this is purely selfish on my end, that I need to cut them out for my safety. I felt bad about that. And the reason I felt bad about that is because I had gone through so much life not having any healthy boundaries at all and allowing people to just do whatever the fuck they wanted to me because of a fear that they would leave me anyways. So if I didn't have, if I had rice paper thin boundaries, then they would stick around. If they felt like I would stick by them through thick and through thin, then, you know, my job was to always forgive and to be understanding and to look past all the things that they've done and now, to be clear, I fully understand and I'm aware of all the damage I've caused people. 
and and sometimes the expectation that they would forgive me and the idea that uh, even though I was causing all that damage I was sick and therefore it should be overlooked you know that was all stuff that I've thought and felt and have experienced so I'm fully aware of like the almost hypocrisy involved here but in my my addiction I felt that I deserved this as a sort of like martyr-like return on investment for all the damage I had been doing to people. So coming into sobriety, it was very foreign for me to set healthy boundaries at all. It was very foreign uh, to me to cut toxic people out, you know, and to look at it now and see that me keeping those people around was like, it was like drinking poison in the hopes that they would get better. I was slowly killing myself in the hopes that they would get better. When they didn't get better, I sometimes would blame myself for not doing enough for them, not allowing them in enough, not, you know, it's, it's, you know, just because I'm so sensitive <laughs> as a human, I somehow can make it all about me. Other, even other people's struggles were somehow all about me. And so I recognize a lot of this in my friend, but I also have grown to learn that at times it's just okay to cut people out. It's not a matter of me. I don't have a resentment to him. Um, I'm really sad, fucking heartbroken that after all this time, he's gone nowhere and he doesn't want to go anywhere and he has all the tools available and I've, you know, have offered to, to do what I can to help. I'm not going to get sober for him. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to also let somebody abuse me because they don't want to get help as a, you know, I don't want, I'm, I'm not going to be there for somebody who while in their hole are trying to pull me in. And that's exactly what it felt like. He wanted to dehumanize me. He wanted to diminish everything that I have done, all the work that I have done. You know, I am not the kind of person to rub this shit in people's faces. I wasn't sitting there telling him, well, I'm sober now and I'm doing so much better. Like I simply stated that I hadn't been drinking for that long and that I'd been working on myself. And that's really all we talked about. Like, I mean, that's just the extent of the conversation. I asked him about him. We talked about him. We talked about what he was going through and what he was doing. I tried to focus it on him because I wanted to be there for him. That's the healthy thing to do. So to hear him tell me that I've just, you know, your prison experience, you think your prison experience makes you better than me. You think that because you got sober, you're better than me. You think you think you're some hot shit because you dug yourself out of the hole and, and just on and on, man. I'm not going to let that happen. I hope folks that are listening that might be struggling with this have an idea that it's okay to cut people out. It just is. And sometimes it's necessary, even later in sobriety. And while my my cutting spree was fairly short-lived and there's not many people in my life, there's nobody in my life that I have to have these concerns with and I have strong boundaries and I'm, I'm much more able to uphold those boundaries. It doesn't mean that if this person called me somehow today, I have him blocked right now, but he, I think he still has my cell phone number. If he was to reach out to me today, if I was to see him on the streets, and he said, I just want to get to a meeting. I want to get sober. I have no questions asked. I'd get him in my car and we'd go find a meeting. No questions asked. That doesn't mean I'm letting him back in my life. And that doesn't mean that all is forgotten. But above all else, if somebody, regardless of what the situation is, asked me for help to get sober, I would be there for them. And so as someone in recovery, it's, it's for my own protection that I cut certain people out. It's in the hopes that they'll get better. I'll check in on some folks once in a while you know, to see how they're doing. It is not out of like malice to them. I don't wish anything but the best for that guy. I hope, hope he finds his way into the rooms uh, or at least in a, into a, a counseling room is somewhere that can he, he can start working on this trauma that he's just, you know, 
eating. Uh, whatever it is he needs to go through, I hope he finds growth. And I hope that he reaches a point to where he finally understands what he has been trying to do to people around him. I don't know if he'll ever forgive me. There's a possibility he will always feel like I abandoned him in his time of, time of need. That's not for me to really stress on. I did my best. I did what I could. I offered support. I offered help. I was there as much as possible. And as a result, he wanted to cause me harm. So I had to cut him out. And, you know, reflecting on old me and how I would have handled that, I had, there's only two people I really ever actually cut out. You know, my dad and this guy. Well, I count his sister because they're basically one and the same. Uh, there's not a lot of people otherwise. You know, there's people that I maybe stopped kind of like hanging out with. But an actual like, no, you're doing me harm. I'm not going to accept this kind of a cut. Before sobriety, it was just those two. There wasn't much. There wasn't anybody else. I just allowed, you know, the trauma. So looking back at old me and seeing how far I've come you know, really putting into action the work I've done in upholding my boundaries uh, makes me pretty happy. You know, I'm 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 sad that we were not able to rebuild our friendship, that that had to end that way. But I'm also very happy that um, I'm not regressing in any of this. The stuff's really coming handy. It's it's really uh, sticking. You know. So with that being said, let's get into the daily, daily stoic. Uh, this is November 9th, of course. It's when it's hopefully coming out. All is fluid. The universe is change. Life is opinion. Marcus Aurelius, Meditations 4.3.4b. In Plutarch's Life of Theseus, he describes how the ship of Theseus, an Athenian hero, was preserved by the people of Athens in battle-ready condition for many centuries. Each time a board decayed, it would be replaced until eventually every stick of wood in it had been replaced. Plutarch asks, is it still the ship of Theseus or is it a new one? In Japan, a famous Shinto shrine is rebuilt every 23 years. It's gone through more than 60 of these cycles. Is it one shrine 1,400 years old or 60 consecutive shrines? Even the US, U.S. Senate, given its staggered elections, could be said to have never been fully turned over. Is it the same body formed in the days of George Washington? Our understanding of what something is is just a snapshot, an ethereal opinion. The universe is in a constant state of change. Our nails grow and are cut and keep growing. New skin replaces dead skin. Old memories are replaced by new memories. Are we still the same people? Are the people around us the same? Nothing is exempt from this fluidity, not even the things we hold most sacred. I'm not going to lie. This is one of those where I'm like, ah, I'm going to have some trouble really applying this to my sobriety. And that happens. The book isn't meant for sobriety. It's meant for life. Uh, but, you know. That's the goal of mine is to try to apply it to my current work in recovery and in, you know, self-improvement. Um, to answer the question, is it the same ship or is it the same shrine? You know, if if they built it 10 feet away or 100 feet away or 60 feet away and they rebuilt it exactly the same way, would it be the same shrine? No, no, probably not. Most people would probably agree that it's not the same shrine. So it's interesting that they they used examples of like kind of location based ideas like i i guess to me the answer is very obvious no it's not the same one like of course not but that's not what is being remembered or appreciated or what is important right the shrines the the ship of theseus upholding those in some kind of a naturalized sense is really just for our nostalgia right it's just for the sense of like remembrance uh, you know, a cool place to go visit. Maybe some reverence to some people, the shrine especially, right? I'm sure it's like has some holy power over folks 
or I'm not sure exactly how that shrine works, but you know what I mean? Like there's some sort of reverence there. I don't think for the people that are there, they care that it's the same shrine. I think philosophically more people care about whether or not it's the, the same shrine because it's an interesting question. But personally, I'm going to try to rephrase this a little differently. If I go through all this work, all this healing, all this recovery to rebuild myself and I end up rebuilding myself exactly as I was before I got here, am I still the same person? And to me, yes, I, I'm going to change. I'm going to need to change. Rebuilding myself as I basically want however I want, uh, to, to build myself back up, um, should not result in me piecing myself back together exactly as I was like, that's not the point of all this. I should see change. You know, there's some bits of me that are going to have to be new. They're going to have to be updated. And they're going to have to look differently. And we kind of talked about that with, um, sort of like the character defects, you know, not everything has to go, but yeah, all that's going to have to really get thrown out of there. You know, it, it, for me, it was important that when I looked at myself in the mirror that I really didn't see the person I was. And I don't. I don't see the person I was. I don't see the, the person I was when I went to prison. I don't see the person I was when I came out of prison and almost cheated on my fiance. I don't see the person I was when I was in an unhealthy marriage. I don't see the person I was, even though I've done all this work and I rebuilt myself and for the most part looked the same. So I don't know if that actually worked. Maybe I got something out of that on accident. You guys, let me know what you think. Everybody listening, let me know what you think about that. What What did you get out of it? How did you interpret that one? It's kind of a weird one. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. You can find me. Uh, there's two groups there. One um, that I'm not really doing a great job of like flourishing with activity, uh, but there's the group and then there's the actual page. It's more like a business page. I post my episodes there. You're more than welcome to interact there, though it is a little different. You can re reach me through uh, Messenger there, though. Um, you can also reach me at oneatheistinaa at gmail.com uh, and also an atheist in at Twitter and atheist underscore in underscore AA at Instagram. Share with me what you think. Whatever preferred social media outlet you choose, I'll do my best to reply as quickly as possible. You know, let's have kind of a dialogue about that. Or you could just one word send me or one sentence send me like, hey, I disagree with you. This is what I thought. Or I agree with you. Whatever it is. The interaction helps me a lot. You know, I really appreciate everybody who's been able to reach out and just let me know what they think um, about either the topic or even just the podcast in general. So, you know, do that. It's appreciated. Without much further ado... Uh, this is it. This is the last chapter of the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. A vision for you. We've done it. We've made it to the end. Uh, what's going to happen next after I finish this chapter, which I'm going to split up into two parts because I think, honestly, with how much is left, that might be the best thing to do. Um, you know, I'm going to split things up with a couple of different pieces of literature that I feel is relevant to what we've kind of discussed or I've discussed through the, the majority of this book. And then if I can, I'm going to do that, possibly have a couple guests and start on the 12 by 12 on in January. Now, I don't know if I can line everything up so that the 12 by 12, since it's step and tradition oriented and it's by numerical order, I don't know if I can keep it step one, tradition one for the month of January and then so on throughout the, the months. But that that would be cool. Um, I don't I just don't know if I could carry that out through an entire year. So I'm not sure if what I'll do is maybe have the first podcast of the week of the month of January be about step one and tradition one, and then have the remaining three episodes be more in regards to 
other areas of AA and recovery, maybe guest work. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. Um, I might just end up powering through the 12 by 12 uh, rather than try to space it out in some kind of way. I don't want to create any real major constraints that might hinder the quality of the podcast just for kind of a gimmick. You know what I mean? So we'll see if it, if it feels intuitive, it feels organic to do it that way, then I'll do it that way. If you guys have some input on what you would like to hear and, and the structure you'd like to hear, I know some people have already told me they'd like to hear the 12 by 12. That's why I'm doing that next. Uh, but if anybody else has anything that they want to hear, you know, please let me know. Yeah, I've told you my socials, reach out to me more than happy to hear from folks and uh, take in all ideas as consideration. So that being said, this is page 151. Again, I'm using the uh, AA Big Book app that should be available in all app stores. It's a huge uh, resource for folks. I mean, it's the big book in your pocket for free. That's pretty much the best use for it, but it also has community stuff. It has a couple meeting guides. It has other podcasts. I wholeheartedly recommend other people checking out, especially Beyond Belief. That's one of my favorite podcasts. It's actually the podcast that inspired me to do this one. And, uh, you know, I, I hope someday I can get on that podcast. I think that'd be fantastic. Uh, I think John is a pretty awesome guy and it'd be, it'd be really great to be able to have a conversation with him. You know, someday that might happen for now. A vision for you. For most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. It means release from care, boredom, and worry. It is joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good. But not so with us in those last days of heavy drinking. The old pleasures were gone. They were but memories. Never could we recapture the great moments of the past. There was an insistent yearning to enjoy life as we once did, and a heartbreaking obsession that some new miracle of control when able us to do it. There was always one more attempt and one more failure. And, you know, for me, I just have to say real quick that um, I had some good times. It wasn't like that every time I drank. Uh, that's what made it hard for me to quit. I, early sobriety, the first couple times I got sober, it was really hard for me not to romanticize those good times. But I am fully disconnected from those good times now. I can look back on them fondly and not have any sense that I miss that kind of time. I've just learned to appreciate the good and the bad as it came. I think that might be important to some folks. Back to the reading. The less people tolerated us, the more we withdrew from society, from life itself. As we became subjects of King Alcohol, this is capitalized, King Alcohol, shivering denizens of his mad realm, the chilling vapor that his loneliness settled down. It thickened, ever becoming blacker. Some of us sought out sordid places, hoping to find understanding, companionship, and approval. Momentarily, we did. Then would come oblivion, and the awful awakening to face the hideous four horsemen. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. Unhappy drinkers who read this page will understand. Okay, I love this chapter, this paragraph. Seriously, you know, it's, that is as Bill Wilson-y as it gets. And I can appreciate him for reasonably trying to dress up kind of a dry subject, you know? He did sort of fancy himself uh, illiterate. And I'm not saying that he's like illiterate or something, but he definitely was more on the fence line that he was going to be writing the next great American novel less than he was writing a booklet of recovery. You know what I mean? It's just fun to read this stuff. Some of this stuff when he gets like really going, when he's really amped up <laughs> like the four horsemen, it's just, I, I love it. Now and then a serious drinker being dry at the moment says, I don't miss it at all. Feel better, work better, having a better time. As ex-problem drinkers, we smile at such a sally. We know our friend is like a boy whistling in the dark to keep us up his spirits. 
He fools himself. Inwardly, he would give anything to take half a dozen drinks and get away with them. He will presently try the old game again, for he isn't happy about his sobriety. He cannot picture life without alcohol. See, that one right there. I have a friend who's still struggling, man, in, in this in this alcoholic haze that he's created. And I, I call him an alcoholic because he calls himself one. He's been in recovery. He knows all the stuff. So there's not like really anything new that I can tell the guy. Uh, he hasn't really created any damage in my life. Um, so it's not something I feel I need to cut out. But he definitely is scared to get sober. Like that's just to me, that's where it feels like he's at. He is just scared. I don't know what the whole fear might be. His are probably different than mine, but that's what it comes down to. You know, he's he just cannot picture life without alcohol. Having been there, it's so... The juxtaposition of where I'm at now and seeing someone there is is kind of difficult, you know, because I don't really... I can't really place myself there anymore. I can have empathy for a situation, but I can't picture that feeling anymore in myself. So I don't know, that just that just struck me. Because he, he reached out the other day and told me that... Uh, He's having a really hard time, and I, I was like, well, I mean, you know everything you need to do. If you want to ever, go to, ever want to go to a meeting, let me know. But he's not ready yet. Someday, he will be unable to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. Then he will know loneliness such as few do. He will be at the jumping off place. He will wish for the end. And that resonates with me, of course, with my suicide. I mean, that my suicide attempt. That was exactly it, you know? Someday, he will be unable to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. That that point where it wasn't even the drinking anymore. I just had gotten to the place where I just couldn't, there was no other option but to end things. Please don't ever get there, whoever's listening. Don't get there. If you, if you feel like you're on the verge, man, and if you're struggling like that, reach out to somebody. Even if it, reach out to somebody you don't know. Call a hotline. The suicide hotlines are all available. They're all filled with great people that are just there to listen. And they're not there to listen because they're getting paid. Most of them are volunteers. They genuinely just want to heal, help people heal and help people get resources. It's not like it's some state-organized labor camp or something filled with people that are all miserable and none of them want to be there. Uh, most of them are either suicide survivors or they have family members who committed suicide or also suicide survivors or or just want to help. So you always have that in the back of your head, that there's never no one. There's never no one. There's always someone, always, that's willing to help. At the very least, willing to listen until you can get pack off that jumping off place. Back to the reading. We have shown how we got out from under. You say, yes, I'm willing, but am I to be consigned to a life where I shall be stupid, boring, and glum? Like some righteous people I see? I know I must get along without liquor, but how can I? Have you a sufficient substitute? Uh, personally, I've... I have had the most interesting and exciting little bit of life in sobriety than any of the time beforehand. Like I, I just, even when I'm bored, I'm not bored. Like there's always fucking something. There's just tons of shit. And I remember it all for the most part, even though I have like a weird memory and I've enjoyed even the bad stuff, I guess, if that's really the right way of saying it, I've appreciated even the bad stuff. Yes, there is a substitute and it is vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. That to me is an extremely important part. I've spoken many times about the fellowship being the reason why I continue to come back to AA because of, yeah, the fellowship, man. You just can't really find it anywhere else outside of actual religious rooms, you know? Uh, it's just not really there. You can see it in places like car clubs, like people that have cars, you know, different clubs like that, motorcycle clubs. But if you don't really have an interest in that kind of stuff, then this is it. There you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. Your imagination will be fired. Life will mean something at last. 
the most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Thus we find the fellowship, and so will you. How is that to come about, you ask? Where am I to find these people? Uh, fucking online, man. If you feel like you have to ask someone where the next meeting is, uh, you know, I encourage you to take a few minutes and check out your city's inner group online because I haven't really come across too many of those that didn't have a very robust meeting list and a very up-to-date meeting list, or at least a ton of contact information on how to get to those meetings if you're in like a very small rural area. If you're in a bigger area, if you're in a bigger town like I am, um, it's a it's a highly updated, very good list. You should never have trouble finding a meeting in the digital age. You're going to meet these new friends in your own community. Near you, alcoholics are dying helplessly like people in a sinking ship. If you live in a large place, there are hundreds. High and low, rich and poor, there are future fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. Among them, you will make lifelong friends. I'm going to double down on that too. You know, during my time when I was uh, going to the meetings out outside of my area, they were 20-30 minutes away, which I guess isn't that far. Back when I first came into the, the, the group before... You know, I went out for 10 years. Some of the people I hung out with, one of the guys was a detective for the police department. Uh, another person was an EMT. Another person was like a COO of a, a corporation. Another person was just, you know, a basic laborer like me. There's a couple of homeless people that came into that meeting regularly. There was just a wide range of people and none of that status meant a thing. It really didn't. Some business owners, you know, when we were all standing outside, we were talking about recovery. That's what we talked about. And we had a genuine connection based on our interest and willingness to recover. And, you know, we, we flicked each other shit. We, uh, we roasted each other and, uh, we were there when someone was having a hard time and, uh, we celebrated the wins and we were there during the losses, man. Like it just, that's what this for me is all about. Seriously. You will be bound to them with new and wonderful ties, for you will escape disaster together and you will commence shoulder to shoulder your, com your common journey. Then you will know what it means to give of yourself that others may survive and rediscover life. You will learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as thyself. It may seem incredible that these men are to become happy, respected, and useful once more. How can they rise out of such misery, bad repute, and hopelessness? The practical answer is that since these things have happened among us, they can happen with you. Should you wish them above all else and be willing to make use of our experience, we are sure they will come. The age of miracles is, is till upon us. Our own recovery proves that. It's sort of the language used right here uh, that explains to explains why I am so forthcoming with the fact that I am in recovery and that at times I'm, I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. I get the anonymity thing was useful really at one point, but now we're in a place in our society where what needs to be really dug at is the stigma. You know, people feel like that they can't have a place in recovery because it's still looked down upon. The idea that if you're a recovering addict or you're a recovering alcoholic, that there's something wrong with you, something physically damaged that you know, you're, you're a bad person. It, a lot of it comes from this an anonymity. Like we don't even really want to express this with people that we're recovering and that we're living life. And that it's because we have a fellowship of this program, you know, before, yeah, I get that people had to hide this stuff, but I think kind of accepting that you have to hide it is a part of the problem. It just kind of enables that sort of stigma to persist. You know, even if amongst ourselves, we really don't want to let, we don't want to let anybody know that we're in recovery because they might judge us. Just sort of says that we accept that you're going to judge us and therefore it's our, we have to deal with that. I just can't really, 
I just can't really accept that. Um, you know, I don't shout it from the rooftops and I, and I do agree that it needs to stay out of radio and press and, and all that. But if I'm at the bar and somebody asks me if I, if I want to drink and I say, no, I don't drink. And they ask me how come, and it ends up leading to a conversation about Alcoholics Anonymous. That's not breaking my anonymity. If I go online and I share the fact that I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't feel that breaks our anonymity. That just continue pushes against that stigma that there's something completely irrecoverably broken about us because we can't drink. Our hope is that when this chip of a book is launched on the world tide of alcoholism, defeated drinkers will seize upon it to follow its suggestions. Many, we are sure, will rise to their feet and march on. They will approach still other sick ones and fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous may spring up in each city and hamlet. Havens for those who must find a way out. This paragraph did so much for me it, the first few times that I read this book, the last time I got sober, so just very recently, a couple years ago, when me and my sponsor were reading this, did so much for me to kind of place what my faith was and how it worked. And since it's not metaphysical and it doesn't rely on the spiritual, my faith is based on this feeling right here. The people that wrote this book back in 30-whatever, when it was actually written, who, who who believed in this program, they'd only been sober a couple years. They didn't really have a lot of sobriety, right? I think I've mentioned this before. They believed in this 100% with no real proof. They just knew that if they continued to do this, that they were going to stay sober forever. At this point, they didn't really have any reason to believe that that were possible outside of just how they believed it. And it just ended up being true. A lot of that, I think, is just from the blind belief that it was going to be true. Uh, and it's stuff like what they're saying here. You know, they believed that if they got this book out in the hands of the people that needed it, that those people would find recovery, spread it to other people, and that they would get sober. They believe that 100%. That's, you know, where my faith comes from. And what I tell people when, I, when, I, when they ask me why I don't have a higher power, how can you work this program without a higher power? That right there. It's not a higher power. Them believing in this book is not a position above me. But them believing in this book is something that I can believe in or believing more in the program. In the chapter, Working with Others, you gathered an idea of how we approach and aid others to health. Suppose now that through you, several families have adopted this way of life. You will want to know more of how to proceed from that point. Perhaps the best way of treating you to a glimpse of your future will be to describe the growth of the fellowship among us. Here is a brief account. Years ago, in 1935, one of our number made a journey to a certain western city. From a business standpoint, his trip came off badly. He had been successful in his enterprise. He would have been set on his feet financially, which at that time seemed vitally important. But his venture wound up in a lawsuit and bogged down completely. The proceeding was shot through with much hard feeling and controversy. Bitterly discouraged, he found himself in a strange place, discredited and almost broke. Still physically weak and sober but a few months, he saw that his predicament was dangerous. He wanted so much to talk with someone. But whom? One dismal afternoon, he paced a hotel lobby, wondering how his bill was to be paid. At the end of the room stood a glass covered directly of local churches. Down the lobby, a door opened into an attractive bar. He could see the gay crowd inside. In there, he would find companionship and release. Unless he took some drinks, he might not have the courage to scrape an acquaintance and would have a lonely weekend. Of course he couldn't drink, but why not sit, hopefully, at a table? A bottle of ginger ale before him. After all, had he not been sober six months now, perhaps he could handle, say, three drinks, no more. Fear gripped him. He was on thin ice. Again, it was the old insidious insanity, that first drink. With a shiver, he turned away and walked down the lobby to the church directory. Music and gay chatter still floated to him from the bar. 
But what about his responsibilities, his family and the man who would die because they would not know how to get well? Ah, yes, those other alcoholics. There must be many such in this town. He would phone a clergyman. His sanity returned and he thanked God. Selecting a church at random from the directory, he stepped into a booth and lifted the receiver. See, and to me, that's just a clear and perfect example of this, you know, the, the kind of tired trope that gets thrown around in AA meetings. Pause when agitated. It's really that simple. You don't have to actually take action. Just don't take action. Take a minute to not take any fucking action. Because when when I'm agitated, uh, I have a tendency to make some just really catastrophically terrible decisions. Very brash, irrational uh, decisions that aren't based in logic or reality. They're purely based in just raw and um, uncompromising emotion. And when I pause, when I'm agitated like that, I usually allow myself enough time to have a clearer direction clear thought and can take action that actually makes sense. His call to the clergyman led him presently to a certain resident of the town who, though formerly able and respected, was then nearing the nadir of alcoholic despair. It was the usual situation. Home in jeopardy, wife ill, children distracted, bills in arrears, and standing damage. He had a desperate desire to stop, but saw no way out, for he had earnestly tried many avenues of escape. Painfully aware of being somehow abnormal, the man did not fully realize what it meant to be alcoholic. When our friend related his experience, the man agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long. A spiritual experience, he conceded, was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. He told how he lived in constant worry about those who might find out about his alcoholism. See, that right there is what I'm talking about, man, that stigma. Stigma still around people still terrified someone's gonna find out you know because of how shitty we treat people that have such a hard time with this stuff yeah they're fucking lesser than there's something wrong with them you know and then sort of instead of helping them or presenting them with the, an alternative we fucking shit all over them so of course they hide it anyways he had of course the familiar alcoholic obsession that few knew of his drinking why he argued should he lose the remainder of his business only to bring still more suffering to his family by foolishly admitting his plight to people from whom he made his livelihood. He would do anything, he said, but that. You fucking hear this? <laughs> this is still prevalent, man. He would do anything but let people know that he's an alcoholic. He would literally allow himself to continue to destroy everything in his entire life, <laughs> but to let people know he's an alcoholic. Being intrigued, however, he visit invited our friend to his home. Some time later, and just as he thought he was getting control of his liquor situation, he went on a roaring bender. For him, this was the spree that ended all sprees. He saw that he would have to face his problem squarely, that God might give him mastery. There was an asterisk back here, and this asterisk reads, uh, This refers to Bill's first visit with Dr. Bob. These men later became co-founders of AA. Bill's story opens the text of this book. Dr. Bob's heads the story section. So we might read Dr. Bob's story just because he is a co-founder. Um, that might be that might be a good idea. One morning, he took the bull by the horns and set out to tell those he feared what his trouble had been. He found himself surprisingly well received and learned that many knew of his drinking. Stepping into his car, he made the, re, uh, the rounds of people he had hurt. He trembled as he went about it, for this might mean ruin, particularly to a person in his line of business. And I get the feeling that, again, like just in one day... They're like, let's just hit these ninth steps today, all of them at once. And like, meanwhile, I have I have nine steps I'm still working on. I've been sober for fucking almost three years, not out of procrastination, just like finding the right time, like the, the right time that me and my sponsor both agree is reasonable. You know, there's people that I still 
kind of am unsure how to reach out to fully because it doesn't seem like the best time you know either i'm about to and i find out that something horrible is going on in their life or whatever the reason might be like just this it just seems unreasonable to think that people were doing all these steps in one day or two days or a weekend you know just baffling to me at night at midnight he came home exhausted but very happy he has not had a drink since as we shall see, he now means a great deal to his community, and the major liabilities of 30 years of hard drinking have been repaired in four. But life was not easy for two friends. Plenty of difficulties presented themselves. Both saw that they must keep spiritually active. One day they called up the head nurse of a local hospital, and they explained their need and inquired if she had a first-class alcoholic prospect. She replied, yes, we've got a corker. He's just beaten up a couple of nurses. Okay, that's not funny, but a corker? What does that even mean? <sighs> I love some of these old terminologies. Goes off his head completely when he's drinking. But he's a grand chap when he's sober, though he's been in here eight times in the last six months. Understand he was once a well-known lawyer in town, but just now we've got him strapped down tight. There's an asterisk here. Asterisk says, this refers to Bill's and Dr. Bob's first visit to AA number three. See the pioneer section. This resulted in AA's first group at Akron, Ohio. Uh, back to what it the, the original spire. He here was a prospect, all right, but by the description, none too promising. What was isn't this what you guys were looking for? What do you mean by the description? It's exactly right up your alley. The use of spiritual principles in such cases was not so well understood as it is now. But one of the friends said, "Put him in a private room. We'll be down." Two days later, a future fellow of Alcoholics Anonymous stared glassily at the strangers beside his bed. Who are you fellows, and why this private room? I was always in a ward before. This is the first 12 step. This right here. Literally the foundation of the program is built on these three folks meeting each other, basically. Said one of the visitors, we're giving you a treatment for alcoholism. Hopelessness was written large on the man's face as he replied, oh, but that's no use, nothing would fix me. I'm a goner. The last three times I got drunk on the way home from here. I'm afraid to go out the door. I can't understand it. For an hour, the two friends told him about their drinking experiences. Over and over, he would say, that's me. That's me. I drank like that. The man in the bed was told of acute poisoning from which he suffered, how it deteriorates the body of an alcoholic and warps his mind. There was much talk about the mental state preceding the first drink. Yes, that's me, said the sick man. The very image. You fellows know your stuff all right, but I don't see what good it'll do. You fellows are somebody. I was once, but I'm a nobody now. From what you tell me... I know now more than ever that I can't stop. At this point, the visitors burst into laugh. Said the future fellow anonymous, damn little to laugh about that I can see. The two friends spoke of their spiritual experience and told him about the course of action they carried out. I'd probably suggest that if you are going on a 12 step that when they tell you that they're at the bottom of the literal barrel, that they're just at rock bottom, uh, that you don't laugh at them or laugh in their faces. sort of weird <laughs> that they would do that. He interrupted. I used to be strong for the church, but that won't fix it. I've prayed to God on hangover mornings and sworn that I'd never touch another drop. But by nine o'clock, I'd be boiled as an owl. <laughs> Is that what people were doing back then? They were boiling owls? Next day, found the prospect more receptive. He had been thinking it over. Maybe you're right, he said. God ought to be able to do anything. Then he added, he sure didn't do much for me when I was trying to fight this booze racket alone. On the third day, the lawyer gave his life... 
to the care and direction of his creator and said he was perfectly willing to do anything necessary. His wife came, scarcely daring to be hopeful, though she thought she saw something different about her husband already. He had begun to have a spiritual experience. That afternoon, he put on his clothes and walked from the hospital a free man. He entered a political campaign, making speeches, frequenting men's gatherings of all sorts, often staying up all night. He lost the race by only a narrow margin, but he had found God, and in finding God, had found himself. Which, I mean, whatever. I just happened to be a drunk at the local sanitarium, and these guys just ended up, you know, finding him. Like, that was in June 1935. He never drank again. He, too, has become a respectful and useful member of his community. He has helped other men recover, and is a power in the church, from which he has long absent. So, you see, there are three alcoholics in that town who now felt they had to give others what they had found or be sunk. After several failures to find others, a fourth turned up. He came through an acquaintance who had heard the good news. He proved to be a devil-may-care young fellow whose parents could not make out whether he wanted to stop drinking or not. They were deeply religious people, much shocked by their son's refusal to have anything to do with the church. He suffered horribly from his sprees, but it seemed as if nothing could be done for him. He consented, however, to go to the hospital, where he occupied the very room recently vacated by the lawyer. He had three visitors. After a bit, he said, The way you fellows put this spiritual stuff makes sense. I'm ready to do business. I guess the old folks were right after all. So one more was added to the, the fellowship. I'm not sure if that's somebody that was like a self-proclaimed atheist or not, but I kind of get the feeling that maybe they were hinting at that, you know, just based on the We Agnostic section of the book. All this time... Our friend of the hotel lobby incident remained in that town. He was there three months. He now returned home, leaving behind his first acquaintance, the lawyer and the devil-may-care chap. These men had found something brand new in life. Though they knew they must help other alcoholics if they would remain sober, that motive became secondary. It was transcended by the happiness they found in giving themselves for others. They shared their homes, their slender resources, and gladly devoted their spare hours to fellow sufferers. They were willing, by day or night, to place a new man in the hospital and visit him afterward. They grew in numbers. They experienced a few distressing failures, but in those cases, they made an effort to bring the man's family into a spiritual way of living, thus relieving much worry and suffering. Yeah, hearing, hearing what they were willing to do in the early years of sobriety you know, as an AA organization is pretty intense. You know, Lois is a goddamn saint. Like, there's just no other way about it. She opened her house up to complete and utter strangers because she believed in what her husband was doing. And for some reason, it was keeping him sober and she was willing to go along with that. Her, her, their lifestyle and how much it changed um, just sort of falls in line, I guess, with like the idea that you kind of, sometimes you just need to change your suffering. You know, he was suffering from alcoholism, Bill was, uh, he was de destroying his family. In order for him to get sober, they had to adjust to a new suffering. People in and out all the time. Bill not really being home that often. Um, strangers, you know, making themselves at home. The potential that one of those strangers goes out, gets drunk, and comes back and makes a ruckus, which sounds like that's something that happened. At times, not knowing if they were going to have enough money to survive, which wasn't something new, but it was still something to suffer through. And they had to choose that and maintain that. You know, at no point, I think, do we ever really relieve ourselves of any kind of suffering. We just change the kind that we're willing to accept. 
A year and six months later, these three had succeeded with seven more. Seeing much of each other, scarce an evening passed that someone's home did not shelter a little gathering of men and women, happy in their release and constantly thinking how they might present their discovery to some newcomer. In addition to these casual get-togethers, it became customary to set apart one night a week for a meeting to be attended by anyone or everyone interested in a spiritual way of life. Aside from fellowship and sociability, the prime object was to provide a time and place where new people might bring their problems. I think right there I'm going to quit. So it's about four pages left, and uh, I think I think that's a good spot to stop. You know, this is a pretty pretty good episode. I feel pretty confident about everything. I like this I like this chapter a lot. You know, yeah, they talk about God and stuff like that, but just hearing the story of how they fucking went all in, man. You know, they just went all in on this. And they trusted the process that they had come up with. And yeah, they gave it that spiritual, metaphysical, sort of otherworldly addition. But the fact that people who don't have that are still getting the same results is all I need. To f- fully believe in this program and use that as my source of faith. And it's really, it's I mean, it's honestly the history of AA is just fucking amazing. Bizarre and chaotic and insane and amazing. And uh, I, I just enjoy reading more about it. And I hope others have been enjoying it as well. Um, we're going to, like I said, we're going to start branching out away from that, you know, we'll, we'll touch on some other history stuff. I, I will always be interested in learning more about it, but as far as like, there's always a difference between reading the history after the fact, reading people talk about the history of a thing after researching it versus reading the book during the historical timeline. And this book was written at the very, you know, outset like at the very fresh, freshest, earliest stages. So it's different reading about the history than actually reading the history. So uh, there's a lot there. Anyways, uh, you know, I've given out my socials, but I'll do it again real quick. You can reach me on Facebook at An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA, in both the group and the uh, the page, if you find that. You can reach me on An Atheist in on Twitter. You can reach me at oneatheistinaa at gmail.com. And atheist underscore in underscore AA at uh, Instagram. You know, if you have any feedback for me, anything at all, uh, just just shoot me a message. If it's not feedback and you're just, you know, maybe you're struggling through something, you just want someone to talk to, absolutely, I'm there. I'm all about that. Uh, if you use uh, if you use Facebook, you uh, can create a message and it'll be a direct message to me. I don't share any of this stuff with anybody. It's just me that looks at this. And, you know, anything that you share with me will not be shared with anybody it'll be just something that me and you talk about if if somebody reaches out and they have something that we end up talking about and i think that it might be worth mentioning in the podcast we'll have a conversation about that and how that might look and you know that's not a requirement at all uh but aside from that you know everything that we talk about stays in the meeting basically you know what i mean and uh, i appreciate everybody who's followed me on this journey i appreciate anybody who has found their way here and uh, has stuck around Uh, Here's to many more episodes and to exploring many more forms of sobriety. Thank you for keeping me sober one more day. Until next time.